In the last half of the first chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, Paul contrasts the wisdom of the wise with the wisdom of God. And he concludes that the wisdom of God is of infinitely more value than the wisdom of the wise. This presupposes, of course, that there's a difference between human wisdom and the wisdom of God. And there is. That's not to say the wisdom of this age has no value. Of course it does. We are appreciative of it. We're appreciative of the wisdom of engineering and medicine and many of the other things that make our lives much more comfortable. But this morning I'm speaking of relative value, comparative value. Left on our own, mankind does not have the ability within himself to come up with coherent answers to life's ultimate problems. The first and the biggest problem we all have as human beings is that of our being separated from our Creator. God is holy, and we're anything but. And the catch is we all innately know that. The best solution man has come up with to that dilemma is to make every effort to be as good as we can, hoping against all hope that it will be good enough in the end. Pascal, in his Pensee, says this, It is in vain, O men, that you seek within yourselves the cure to all your miseries. All your insight only leads to the knowledge that it is not in yourselves to discover the true and the good. The philosophers promised them to you and have not been able to keep their promise. When Augustine received the news in 410 that Rome had been sacked, his first thought was to reassure his North African flock, because they didn't know what their future would be. And he said this, If this catastrophe is indeed true, he tells them, it must be God's will. Men build cities and men destroy cities, but the city of God they didn't build and they cannot destroy. The heavenly city, he goes on, outshines Rome beyond comparison. There instead of victory is truth. Instead of high rank, holiness. Instead of peace, felicity. Instead of life, eternity. There, take Aristotle. Put him near to the rock of Christ, and he fades away into nothingness. Who is Aristotle? When he hears the words, Christ said... Then he shakes in hell. Pythagoras said this. Plato said that. Put them near the rock and compare these arrogant people with him who was crucified. Through the incarnation, the presence of God among us in the lineaments of man, we have a window in the walls of time which looks out to the heavenly city. That's Augustine. And Malcolm Muggeridge quipped, about the same issue. He said, Today the earthly city looks ever larger to the point to where it may be said that it has taken over the heavenly one, turning away from God, blown up with the arrogance generated by their fabulous successes in exploring and harnessing the mechanisms of life. Men believe themselves at last in charge of their own destiny. I think all three of these, highly intelligent, Highly educated men had it right. All three are actually echoing Paul's message in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. While the wisdom of the philosophers had value, 
the wisdom of God is of an infinite more value than the wisdom of the philosophers or the wisdom of this age. It's not as though we should be ignorant of the wisdom of this age. I'm not, I'm not arguing that this morning in any way. Certainly the Apostle Paul was conversant with the ideas of the philosophers, as were Pascal, Augustine, and Muggeridge. Paul was highly educated. He had both a classical education in his hometown of Tarsus, and he had a Jewish education or religious education in Jerusalem, with the best of the rabbis being his teachers. So Paul was not ignorant of the views of the philosophers. That's not the point of view from which he's arguing. He knows what their point of view is. He understood the philosophers of his day, and he understood what they were saying perfectly clearly, and he rejected it as insufficient. Now that's the key. Paul knew what their arguments were. He's not coming in as some sort of hayseed into Athens and into Corinth, and so those guys don't know what they're talking about. That's not at all. He knew exactly what they're talking about. And he knew the, the strengths and the weaknesses of what they were talking about. And he knew it had value. Certainly it's, value to discuss, it's valuable to discuss philosophy. But comparative value is what Paul's speaking about. Because at the end of the day, the value of the philosophers and what they said was insufficient. So read all the philosophy you want. I'd encourage it. But read it objectively. And you'll find out that it comes up short. Sure, there's value in reading Aristotle and Plato. I've done that. But the value is nowhere near reading God's own self-disclosure. So if you're in a pinch for time, read this. <laughs> you'll get a lot more out of it. Speaking of this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, the text reads this way. We studied this last week. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are believing, or who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. We saw last time, that when we introduced this passage, that there is a time when a high IQ can be a negative. And that's when it's combined with pride. To the humble, the event and the ramifications of the cross are life-giving. To the prideful, in this passage, to those who are perishing or being destroyed, the cross is utterly foolish. The Corinthian culture was one that valued human wisdom to a fault. And this thinking was making its way into the church. That's why Paul writes this portion of the letter. Remember, Paul is not trying to fix what's out in the Corinthian culture at least not as his primary goal. He's trying to fix what's going on in the church first. Then the church can be a light to the culture. Paul's primary concern is with Corinthian believers, allowing this, these kind of things to come into the church and alter their thinking. He's not arguing against wisdom per se, but he's arguing against this thing that he calls the wisdom of the wise. And I almost put that in air quotes. The wisdom of the wise. Biblical wisdom is the appropriate application of truth to a particular situation. And that's good. James argued for that. It's a good and it's a wonderful thing. It's the counterfeit wisdom that Paul's arguing against. The wisdom of the philosophers of Athens and Corinth. That's what he is arguing against. Then in verses 20 and 21, Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? 
Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Where is the wise man is a reference to a Greek thinker. Where is the scribe, of course, refers to a rabbi. And where is the debater of this age refers to the philosopher. Now, often the Greek thinker and the philosopher were the same person, but Paul breaks them down into two different categories here. And in this passage, Paul is certainly taunting them. Where is this wise man? Where's the rabbi? Where's the debater of this age? Where are they when it comes to really true wisdom? When it comes to wisdom that's going to serve you well on your deathbed. That's the kind of wisdom Paul's thinking about. Now, we can talk all the other stuff we want to talk but when it comes time to you taking your last breath or you standing by the bedside of one of your loved ones who's taking their last breath, holding their hand while they're doing it, where is your confidence going to come from? i got to tell you, it's not going to come from Aristotle. And it's not going to come from Plato. It's going to come from the Lord Jesus Christ and from his resurrection, from his death and his resurrection. That's where confidence in life really comes from. Now, if we expand that and we realize that if we're not ready to take that last breath, I would propose that you're not ready to take your next breath. I hope you follow me. If we are scared, if we don't have the ultimate of life's questions answered, and I think that's destiny, there are others, but I think that's certainly one of the ultimate of life's questions. If we don't have destiny solved, it's not just a problem on your deathbed. It's a problem right now, because if I can't live well, I'm not going to die well, and if, not, not, if I'm not ready to die well, I'm not ready to live well either. So Paul is speaking about the things that really matter. It's amazing to me how many people get religious right before they die. You know, they're all saying there's no atheists in foxholes. I've never been in a foxhole. Maybe there are atheists in there. I'm not sure. But it makes sense to me that there wouldn't be. It's one thing to argue this philosophy, this atheistic philosophy, when you're at a dinner party with friends. It's another thing to argue atheistic philosophy on your deathbed or when the car is spinning out of control. I've never heard of anybody yell, oh, help me, Plato. <laughs> oh, Aristotle. No, even the atheist yells, oh, God. Something inside them knows where the real answer is, and it's in God. Now, again, I'm not putting down Plato or Aristotle. Actually, I've learned a lot from both of them. What I'm talking about today is relative value. That's what we're talking about. And by the way, I do believe that Christians should be conversant in the philosophers. How are we going to speak to the philosophers how are we going to speak to, to, to kids in college if we don't have some idea of what they're learning? If we just come up and say, that stuff's nonsense, they say, well, have you ever read Plato? No, I haven't. Guess what? You just lost the argument. You just lost it. So we need to at least be conversant. Paul was conversant. That's why he could write these things. That's why he could say the, the, the wisdom of the wise is not sufficient because he was thoroughly acquainted with the wisdom of the wise. But you know what else he's thoroughly acquainted with? He's thoroughly acquainted with the cross of Jesus Christ, and he knows that's where the power is. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's where the power is. Not in some nice story, not in a poem or two, and I've got some, but that's not where the power is. The power is in the message of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's what Paul's point is here. So he's taunting these people, where are your wise men? Where now are these wise men? 
all the talking that they're doing, Paul is essentially saying, makes for good entertainment. Because in Greece, they didn't watch the Houston Texans on Saturday night. When there weren't the Olympic Games or the Corinthian Games in town, rather, they would go and watch the debates. That was sport for them. To watch an argument was sport for them. I don't know if watching, I can only stand so many debates, so many arguments, and then I'd rather watch a football game. It's a little more entertaining to me, but that wasn't the way they had it. Paul is saying, give me something that's really relevant to me. Give me something I can live by. Give me something that's going to help me tomorrow when my boss calls me in and says, I need to talk to you for a minute. We're downsizing. And hands you a piece of paper. Give me something that's going to help me then. That's the subject of this passage. All the words of the philosophers sound sophisticated. But sophistication is no substitute for relevance. The world, through its brand of wisdom, did not come to know God. Not even close. So what's the alternative? The best they can do for themselves is to create gods in their own image. And I'm not talking about animals on a mantle, somebody carving an owl and putting it on a mantle. That's not what I'm talking about. There are other forms of idolatry. Some have made an idol, an idol out of science. They've made science their god. You can even hear people use the phrase science versus God. Now capitalize science if there's some sort of deification of science. There is no science versus God. Real science observes the world that God has made. That's real science. But some people are so bent on rejecting God that they've made a God out of observation. Edwin Powell Hubble, whose name is closely associated with Big Bang cosmology and also the telescope that's named after him, wrote these words. Equipped with the five senses, man explores the universe around him and calls the adventure science. But when he wrote it, he capitalized science. That's what I'm talking about, the deification of science. Sometimes I think we've gotten too smart by half. We shouldn't confuse the mechanisms that we observe that God created we shouldn't confuse the mechanisms themselves with the creator who created those mechanisms. We don't worship the mechanisms. The ancients used to worship the sun and the stars and the things of the sea and the creatures that crawled on the land. And in the book of Genesis, Moses stops and tells the, the Jews as they're about to enter into the land. Listen, all the people that you're about to go conquer worship the things that God has made you worship the God who made them. Now, whose side do you want to be on? There are echoes of this even in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It puzzles me how smart men and women can observe the majesty of God's creation and worship the majesty rather than the creator of that majesty. Paul developed a similar point in Romans chapter 1. Prideful fallen human beings willfully suppress the knowledge of the truth and in doing so they create for themselves gods in accordance with their own desires. Gordon Fee, the New Testament scholar, put it this way, a God discovered by human wisdom will be both a projection of human fallenness and a source of human pride. 
And this constitutes the worship of the creature, not the creator. Since God is omniscient, it follows that he's not impressed with human IQ. So Paul goes on to say, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Eudokao is the Greek term that's translated well pleased there. It can also mean that God thought it fitting or God thought it good to offer salvation through a message that the intellectual elite would consider foolish. The message is simple and it's basic. And it's summed up in perhaps the first verse that you ever learned. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16. There's a fellow that goes around to different NFL football games and buys a ticket where he can position himself in the end zone so that when somebody kicks an extra point, he raises up John 3.16. And I have never heard so many people mad about one particular little thing like that as I have even in the last week. For some reason, the sports talk, the sports talk guys have just gotten all over this fellow. And they want him thrown out. They want him banned. They don't want to see John 3.16 up there anymore. And I think part of it has to do with this underlying arrogance. Why should it bother you that much? But you know what? That verse bothers people a lot. And a lot of people think that's a childish verse. That's a children's verse. It's not. It's one of the most profound verses in all the Bible. And by extension, it's one of the most profound sentences in all of literature. And some people think it's just downright foolish. Now, you see, this is where we're going to draw the line. This is where God draws the line, right down the middle of the road, just like William Barrett Travis did at the Alamo in March of 1836. And you're going to have to get on one side of it or the other side of it. And God himself, I think in his sense of irony, but also in his sense of justice, has said, this is where I'm standing right over here. And it's a very simple and it's a very profound message. And if you want it, you're going to have to humble yourselves and walk over this line. Now, you can stand over there and be arrogant and proud and snotty and snobby all you want to be. And all it's going to do is send you right straight to hell. Now, it's your choice. You can be humble and accept the message of the cross, or you can be arrogant and thumb your nose at it, but you're going to do it forever. You're going to do it forever in eternity in hell. That's the choice. It's very clear cut. So John 3.16 is wisdom, pure and simple. It's simple yet profound. But to those who are so hung up on their own intellect, and you know those kind of people, it's foolishness. Now, one thing that bothers me is that some of these folks, and this is just my own pride, but some of these people think that they're the only ones with intellect out there. And that's going to be their downfall. Again, as I stressed last week in the introduction to this passage, Paul is not arguing against the intellect. He himself was a highly intellectual man. I don't know what his IQ was. They didn't have tests back then. But if they did, I'm sure it was off the charts. He was also a highly educated individual. But he's relating that a high IQ can be a negative when it's mixed with pride. That's a big part of the Corinthian problem. Pride. The solution is going to be love, but the problem is pride. Selfishness. And the way Paul's going to put it, the opposite of love is not so much hate. In 1 Corinthians, the opposite of love is selfishness. In verse 22, he goes on to say, For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jews look for signs. And I've got to tell you, that's not totally unreasonable. It's not totally unreasonable to ask for some validation for what you're saying. In fact, Jesus Christ proved that he was indeed the covenant and the Messiah to Israel, not just based on what he said. He didn't ask people to believe just what he said, but based upon what he said and what he did. And the greatest of his works was the resurrection. So it's not unreasonable to ask for a sign, but the Jews had already been given a sign, the resurrection. And they had rejected it. They willfully refused to believe. It's not that they didn't have enough evidence. There is evidence out there. But they willfully refused to believe. The Greeks sought wisdom, which is not totally unreasonable. I like wisdom. I love to learn. And I know you do too. So I understand the idea of Greeks wanting wisdom and seeking wisdom. But when the process of seeking wisdom became their God... They became blind to the truth. You see the distinction? When the process of learning became the God, then they became blind to the truth. For them, the quest for truth became more important than the truth itself, and that's their Achilles heel. The reason I can say that is because when they got to the end, the truth with the little t that they came up with was totally insufficient. But they were happy just because they had gone through the process, because they had had the debates. So the message of a crucified Messiah seems scandalous, Greek term skandalon, to the Jews. And it was foolishness to the Greeks. But in contrast to those who are called, that's to you and me, that's to anyone who has trusted Christ as their Savior, who has humbled themselves, to those who are called, whether Jews or Greeks, the message of the cross is power and real wisdom. So in spite of all that God has revealed about himself, and in spite of of the fact that belief in God and the acceptance of the cross is thoroughly reasonable, still no one's going to come to God without divine enablement. No one can understand spiritual truth without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that. Paul's going to develop that to a great degree in the next chapter. So we'll save comment on that until we get to chapter 2. Then finally in verse 25, But the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul's going to say, time out, hold on, let's just get everything straight. Let's see where we stand and where God stands. God is both wiser and more powerful than human beings, even the smartest and the most powerful. God is infinitely more intelligent than Albert Einstein, Leonardo da Vinci, and Isaac Newton put together by an infinite margin. It's not even close. Because he's infinitely intelligent. We call that omniscience. Omniscience means that God knows everything that's knowable and he's already known it. Now that trumps Da Vinci, Newton, and Einstein by infinity. So when Paul says the foolishness of God is wiser than men, he's not saying that God's actually foolish. But he's saying on God's worst day, which he doesn't have, this is language of accommodation, on God's worst day, he's smarter by an infinite margin than the wisest human being. 
He's omniscient. He knows all that is knowable, and he's always known it. Game over. When it comes to intelligence, game over. We have nothing as human beings to brag about. Now, when I was research, researching this, I, I found out that there were, there's one human being on the planet today that has an IQ of 200. 200. Interesting. The, the fellow has worked most of his life as a security guard. Nothing wrong with being a security guard, but you'd think he'd be an astrophysicist or something. No, he's just a regular guy. I would want him as my partner on Jeopardy or Trivial Pursuit or something, but, but just a regular guy. 200. They don't have a number for God's IQ, though. There is no number. It, it would be infinity. Game over. We can't match wits with God. That was the point of verse 19 last week. Larry Allen, who I liked, he played for the Dallas Cowboys for a while, but he was considered in his day to be the strongest football player in the National Football League. Larry Allen bench-pressed 225 pounds 41 times. Now, that's maybe almost at least maybe twice as much as what I could do. <laughs> Afterwards, he says, no big deal. I don't usually lift that light of weight. So it wasn't really a big deal for me. But Larry Allen has nothing on God. He might be the strongest man among strong men in the NFL, but he's nothing on God, nothing on God, because God's omnipotent. That means God's all-powerful. Omnipotence means that God is able to do all that it is intrinsically possible to do. That's omnipotence. God is infinitely more powerful than Larry Allen and every other offensive lineman put together in the NFL. Game over. It's not even close. No contest. So here's the bottom line to this paragraph as we close this morning's time together. Had God consulted us as to how to solve the sin problem, we would have come up most likely with something that would have been much more acceptable to the intellectual mind, to the intellectual elite. Maybe something like, be as good as you can and join a church. Be nice to people and give money to charity. Stay out of trouble and get baptized. That's what the world would have come up with. And in fact, in many places, that's exactly what the world did come up with. You talk to a lot of people around the globe. They're trying to be good enough to earn their way to heaven. That's the best that they could do, though. Because a crucified Messiah, a crucified God, a crucified Savior is, is moronic to them. It's foolishness to them. Those kind of things that I mentioned, be good to people and join a church or give money to charity, stay out of trouble, those things might attract more people. But the last time I looked, God didn't see fit to consult me on how to get it done. And I'm glad he didn't. He didn't consult you either. He took his own consultation within the Trinity, infinite wisdom. He figured that his plan is infinitely more wise and infinitely more powerful than anything we could come up with, even on our best day. So this is what we're left with. Come to God by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and receive eternal life. Or, keep up this facade of intellectualism and perish. The choice is yours. The wisdom of God is of infinitely more value than the wisdom of the wise. 